The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Oh, Jeremy. Hey, where'd you get the gun? Uh, gun store. Is it for you? No, no, not really. Well, yeah. Uh, Jeremy, we have to talk. Sit down. Jeremy, I want you to listen to me very carefully. This gun is not a toy. You never let me play with toy guns anyway. Right. You hate guns. Right. So, so you are never, ever, ever to touch this gun. Okay. Ever. Because this is a very dangerous weapon. Dad, I know. Scotty Fenneman's dad had a gun. And Scotty and his little sister were playing with it one day. And they had an accident. They shot their dog. I'm really glad we don't have a dog, Dad. Well, uh, okay. Just, just so you understand. So, are you going to shoot it? No, no. This is not for shooting. It's for protection. Oh. You know, Richard says that guns cut off any possibility for a meaningful dialogue. You know, Richard's a very bright guy. Let's see what he has to say after he's been mugged a couple of times, okay? Daddy was mugged. Oh. Well, actually, it was more of a hostage crisis, but Richard was able to convince the gunmen to let go of the tour group and not to blow up the Parthenon. When did this happen? When Mom and Richard were in Greece. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He did this in Greek? Well, he had to after they killed the translator. But, Jeremy, not every situation is solved that easily, okay? This is an extremely dangerous city, and I've decided that having a gun is... is the right thing for me to do. I feel better knowing I have it, and I'm comfortable with my decision. Okay. So just do me one favor. Sure. Don't tell your mother. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 6, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... And welcome to the show today, as our subject will be some, some obviously some election fallout over the U.S. election south of the border. We'll be talking about Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and we'll also be hearing the truth about Stephen Harper from an article actually written before the last Canadian federal election, which is really revealing. But first on the show today, we want to talk about and continue our subject that we started last week on the show about guns as self-defense as a consequence of, uh, of an email we received from Zachary, a fourth-year philosophy student here at the University of Western Ontario. But first, 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call if you want to reach us this morning. Our email number or e- email address is just right chrw at gmail.com and of course you can visit our website at www.justrightmedia.org where you can get um, basically an archive of all of our past broadcasts from the very first one up until today's. Now, if you were tuned into the show last week, at the end of the show, I kind of ran, ran out of time when I was answering an email by UWO student uh, Zachary, who wrote us here at the station. And although I read his complete letter last week, I, I can't just skip over it again and expect you to pick up on it again. So we'll go through some of the main um, 
points that Zachary raised, and he talked about how he had picked up our um, broadcast a couple weeks ago where I was talking about uh, guns, personal ownership of guns, serving a, an essential purpose of self-defense. He didn't really agree with me on that. He said that guns basically do serve a purpose of defense, but do- doesn't have to be wielded by the individual. And so, in other words, he's saying guns should be wielded by the state because that's the only other alternative. And he writes that uh, that while it might be the case that possession of a gun of any sort or weapon might be a right, it is not an inalienable right. I, I would never prefer a state of affairs in which I was required to hold a gun to protect myself. And he thinks that that's what I was advocating. Oh, you know, having the right to a gun is not the same as requiring one to have a gun. And he said, to place upon an individual the responsibility of constant vigilance against those who wish to do him or her harm greatly limits his autonomy. If the interest is in a society which promotes the rationality and flourishing of individuals, why should any of these members rationally desire to own a gun and take on the additional responsibility of self-defense? And then he says, obviously, the limiting of access to, of guns uh, to police military raises questions about the abuse of power by political groups. But he says that's a separate issue. He's correct, although in a way it isn't. And uh, he thinks that uh, he, he believes the protection of individual freedom from external harm as being an essential role of government. And, uh, you know, that it's more important to improve the workings of the system that protects individuals than to give up on them and take it upon ourselves to use force. Now, there are some interesting points that were raised here, and I think Zachary's points go far beyond the ownership of guns, per se. Because guns are not really what we're talking about. We're talking about the right to self-defense and the right to life, essentially. And I can see by Zachary's letter that he is concerned about freedom, that he wants to see, live in a peaceful society, and, you know, and I think he finds it difficult to believe that that can be possible in a society where a lot of people own guns. And yet the evidence is quite to the contrary, and we'll be getting into that a little bit later on. But let's let's deal with some of the philosophical issues that, you know, start off with them. Um, this issue is so wide and so broad-reaching that it goes beyond just the issue of individual gun ownership. And I'm not going to be able to do any justice to this entire issue today, but mark my words, this will just be the first of several uh, shows on this theme and uh, carrying on with this theme. Now... Of course, as we played last week, uh, I'm not arguing for a minute that guns are a fundamental right. No object is a right because someone has to make it first, and the person who makes it is the one who has a right to it. And that's actually an interesting part of the whole gun argument. There are many people who are capable of making their own weapons, using their own mind and their own resources, and to suggest to them they don't have a right to that. To, to something they create, as long as they're not hurting others, okay? Now, of course, that's the assumption that everyone has when it comes to a gun. No, you, you only want a gun to hurt others, and I, I just don't think that's the case. Now, uh, of course, the fundamental right is not the right to own a gun, per se, but the right to self-defense. And as I said last week, you know, I was loose with this term, you know, using calling rights you know, like a physical thing, when really we mean it is right to defend oneself when under physical attack by another. It's to say that, uh, you know, that's, that it is right. It is not, it's just. And uh, we have to bear in mind, too, that we are always armed and that what we're talking about is weapons generally and our fists are, fists are weapons attached to the ends of our arms and all of us are already armed in the original meaning of that word. 
and yet, uh, you know, there's not too many people going around hitting each other. Now, here's where it gets interesting when you say that, yeah, you say that guns serve an essential purpose of self-defense, or, or that you don't believe in that, but the, the defense is yes, but you don't think it has to be wielded by the individual. Now, what you're basically saying is that um, while it might be the case that the possession of a gun or any sort of weapon might be a right, it's not an inalienable right, and that's literally what you're saying, because, of course, inalienable means non-transferable. And to suggest that I'm transferring my right to own a gun because I, I hire someone else to, to carry that gun for me doesn't get rid of my right. No rights are transferable in, the, in, that, in that sense of the word. And if they were, they wouldn't be rights. Or if you want to put it another way, it would never be right to act in one's own self-defense once you've designated that responsibility to someone else, be it a private security guard or the government itself. But here's a, a statement I think is a little scary. You're right that it doesn't matter whether a person is good or bad. There is simply no rational reason to desire to have a weapon for the purpose of self-defense. Uh, you know, then the only rational reason to have a weapon would be what? For offense? It seems that's, that is the only rational reason to have a, uh, have a weapon, if indeed you regard it as a weapon. Uh, a gun being used for sports is not a weapon per se, is it? It's really a, a sporting tool. It's like a golf club, although a deadly one. But in, if that's its purpose, then it's almost you wouldn't call it a weapon in the, in the literal sense of the word. Now, I think that that statement, if on its own, is a little outrageous if, if I'm reading it right, and I don't think that maybe that's what you mean. Because to say there's no rational reason to have a weapon for the purpose of self-defense is exactly the opposite of rational. To sacrifice your life or your safety to the brute who is initiating force against you is, to me, the epitome of irrationality. If someone were attacking me without provocation, I'd sure want to have a weapon for the purpose of self-defense, and to suggest that wanting to survive is an irrational act is something, I don't know, are they teaching that in fourth-year philosophy? It just doesn't make any sense at all. And to say it doesn't matter whether a person is good or bad makes me ask the question, then why did you bother to write about this issue if, if good and bad don't matter? Then why does owning or not owning a gun matter? There's got to be some good or bad in, in that judgment standard what is the standard of good here so are you saying or what it would imply is you know as long as a person doesn't have a gun it's okay to go around being bad and harming otherwise defenseless people i'm sure that's not what you mean but it's the natural consequence of of that particular statement now this argument reveals a fundamental misunderstanding perhaps of my own position and i think confuses the issue of self-defense with the use of retaliatory force and in the context of the latter, uh, retaliatory force, I would agree with, with the gist of your argument, though maybe not your language when you write, quote, I would never prefer a state of affairs and, you know, where you were required to hold a gun to protect yourself and all that stuff, and that you would want other people to look after that for you so you can pursue other personal aims. And uh, you seem to think that all your time would be taken up with self-defense if you owned the gun and all that stuff. Well, to that, I would say, firstly, that the responsibility of self-defense, is it always belongs to the self. That's why it's called self-defense, and it's completely inalienable. That's just the law of nature. It isn't a choice. It isn't a necessity forced upon an individual by, or, sorry, it is a necessity forced upon an individual by another's act of physical aggression. 
The idea that a government or a police officer or a member of a military is there to defend you is simply not the case. That's not how it works. Just try calling a cop sometime for the purpose of self-defense. That's not how it works. People call the police after they've been robbed, after they've been attacked, after they've been defrauded. They don't call the police in advance and say, well, you know, I'd like you to protect me from being defrauded. You think you're going to get that for free? That's not what the police are essentially there to do. They're there for a recursive, not a preventative function, although they like to tell you that they can do the latter. Everybody says they can pre prevent things, and it's just not so. And the authority that we delegate to the police is the authority to use retaliatory force, not defensive force, against those who have already perpetrated an act of violence or murder. At no time do we forfeit any of our right to self-defense. And what's particularly telling about this entire debate so far is that I really haven't even talked about guns as yet, since guns are really incidental to the issue, uh, which is the more fundamental issue of self-defense. Now, I do agree with you that, quote, limiting the, the, the limiting of access to guns to the police, military, etc., raises questions about the abuse of power by political groups. But uh, I, I, maybe I don't agree that it's, it's a completely separate issue. But I again do agree that even if one believes that government involvement should remain minimal, I believe the protection of individual freedom from external harm has an essential role of government. Um, you know, it's a sad fact of, of history, the history of humanity, that more innocent people have been murdered by their own governments than, than by foreign invasions, than by private crime, and all the other types of violent crime combined. If you were to take them all together and compare them to the kind of things governments have done to their own people, the stats would, would be dwarfed. And in a free society, governments govern with what is loosely, though I think a little inaccurately called, you know, the consent of the governed. In a democracy, no individual or group, including politicians and governments, uh, have any rights that each and any other individual does not have. But, you know, now, now listen to your own sentence when you say that you believe the protection of individual freedom in the protection of individual freedom from external harm is an essential role of government. But individual freedom is a social condition. It's, it's not an individual's personal life we're talking about. And external in this context would mean foreign. That is, external to the jurisdiction of the government. And that truly is an essential role of government, one that our own government has a, fortunately abandoned to a frightening degree over the past few decades, forcing Canadians to depend, interestingly, upon an external force, the USA, to protect us from external harm. Isn't that kind of ironic? In saying that people have a fundamental right to self-defense and therefore to own weapons of self-defense, again, I'm in no way suggesting that everyone must carry a weapon, which has been done in some jurisdictions. And the idea that otherwise law-abiding citizens have weapons to attack others simply isn't borne out by any evidence. And by no means do we take it upon ourselves to use force if it is retaliatory force. But we have no choice but to use force in self-defense, since self-defense only occurs when one's under immediate attack. And that's, I think, part of the whole problem here is the definition of these words and how we use the word defense and retaliatory. And I've got to admit that for many years I used to use them interchangeably, and that was quite incorrect. I know Ayn Rand, when she always wrote, she made it clear she was talking about retaliatory force. I don't think she, she spoke much about defensive force at all. And by the way, just so there's no further misunderstanding, even when self-defense 
results in the death or injury of an attacker, one must still justify one's actions before a court of law. That doesn't change. Uh, we're talking about freedom here, not license. And so, you know, think, think twice about that too. Who, who issues licenses? Uh, governments, maybe. <laughs> and what does that give them the right to do? To break all the laws of freedom. That's what really happened. So here's a little further on uh, this whole issue. We're going to take a quick break now. And uh, as you know, a couple weeks ago, I was on the CTS program On the Line Viewpoints with host Christine Williams and other guest Alan Horton. This is one of the few issues that Alan and I actually disagreed on, on the gun control issue. We played one clip last week. Play another one this, way, this week. When we come back on the other side, we'll t be talking again about that uh, Trinity of Force and about the article, in fact, that we were talking about in the clip you are about to hear. We'll be back in a few minutes right after this break. In the news over and over again, here you have an article that was, it was a column written by Lorne Gunther, handgun bans don't prevent murder. Well, the title basically says it all. He doesn't believe in that because he's using in this article Chicago as the greatest example of how it failed. In, in his opinion here. He's citing some relevant stats though that Chicago is now the greatest area in the U.S. city that has the perhaps the strictest, yeah. the, the, the the strictest handgun bans yet they're the new murder capital of the United States so how do you explain that one when you look at it? Handgun bans isn't it just a bunch of political game playing here with all these people? I mean what about the knives? I mean in the last couple of weeks we saw two women in in the GTA in Toronto stabbed we saw another 14-year-old, and this one really touched me, walking through a field, going home from school, stabbed to death. We're seeing violence with knives as well. I mean, sure. it, it's endless. Violence is endless, but somebody's operating that gun here. Nobody is going to be able to prevent violence altogether. That, that's just a given. It, it, it's part of society. It's unfortunate. It's tragic. But to me, it is. Uh, Mr. Gunther's article was almost illogical to me. That was I, illogical to you? Why? It um, is. It why, is. Because, why, um, Alan? I don't see any point if it's bad enough that there are that many, if you're having that much gun control and you're still having that many murders, yes. then abandon gun control and say, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's just try something else. So the murder rate skyrockets. It soars. Who no, I don't believe how, in abandoning it altogether. No, no of course not. But, but, but even, I think even loosely, where, where has that ever happened? That, that, I don't think he's advocating for a total, um, just banning it. But no, he's saying that, that it for, doesn't for work? politicians to keep on saying, Banning guns is the in answer. Fact, the evidence is quite the contrary. In the United States, several, several United States, which I've done a lot of research on, um, have reversed their stands on gun bans and gone the other way and said you now have the right Drastic. to conceal weapons. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, murder and, and a particularly uh, assault and theft has dropped by something like 66% in some jurisdictions. That's interesting. Uh, the city of Kennesaw, Georgia made it mandatory because it had such a crime wave to have people own guns, licensed guns. Again, it dropped. This was back in the 80s. So do you believe we and should drop it? Gun control is only effective with law-abiding, otherwise okay, crime-free citizens. Reasonable. Anybody who's out to break a law is going to be laughing at a gun control law, just like the druggies all laugh at drug laws. It's a joke. Yeah, okay, makes, so, so here we, we must go for a break, but here we have it. Alan, do you believe we need tighter gun controls, Absolutely. more gun bans? Okay, mm -hmm. so here we have Alan believing we need more gun control, Robert believing we, ha we need less, and I kind of like what we have already because from what we're seeing, hey, it's not the criminals th that are going to obey the, the bans, but at the same time, does that mean we throw it all away? We want to hear what you think here. We're going to go for a break. We'll return after this. Stay tuned.
four words have ever been so abused as right to bear arms. You know, that is an amazing, you know what it says in that amendment they talk about in their constitution? It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. You know when that was put in? 1791. Got nothing to do with the guy in the next lane. <laughs> 1791, the year before Charlton Heston was born. And why was it put in? Because the revolution was not long over and the American leaders knew that the British had a re-invasion plan and were going to try to reconquer America. And so the civilians got muskets and they drilled with their muskets. They practiced, they trained so they would be ready with their muskets when the British re-invasion plan went into effect. But the truth is, the truth is, and Charlton Heston will never tell you this, the British reinvasion plan has been canceled. <laughs> the crisis is over. They are not coming. And apart from the Canadian army, who's using muskets? And welcome back to the show, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in the conversation. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and I'll be with you from now till noon. Now, just before we broke there, I was talking about, uh, I'm going to address Dave Broadfoot's comments here, too, on the, on the right to bear arms that he just mentioned in that comedy skit. But first, just to recap, you know, there's a trinity of force, I like to call it, you know, and I, that there's three types of force in the context of our discussion today. And I would call them initiatory, defensive, and retaliatory. Now, initiatory force is generally the kind of force that's bad. Bad people use initiatory force. That's the guy who starts the fight. He initiates it, and hence the name initiatory. The second type of force that we're talking about in this context would be defensive force, the person who's being attacked. Um, must defend himself, otherwise being harmed or killed. And that's why, to me, the issue of defense, of having the right to self-defense, is a non-issue. To say you don't have that is literally to say that you do not have a right to your own life. Now, here is the word that we really should have been using, and I think if this was the word that Zachary was talking about, I think we'd be in agreement on many of his points, and that is the issue of retaliatory force. And it is with retaliatory force that we must be very careful not to get into the old Hatfield and McCoy uh, routine where the retaliation, after someone's already been injured, but there's no further immediate danger, so you're going after the person, and you only have one of two reasons to go after them. You're either going to go after them for revenge or for justice. And that is why, since we've chosen the latter, justice, that we have collectively agreed, if you will, to place that authority in the hands of a government and that it's the government that administers basically the use of retaliatory force in our society. You can't go out and be 
quote, a vigilante, although I often hear that word used in the completely um, wrong sense of the word. By the way, there's lots of evidence uh, that we've done on past shows of Just Right. You can get, again, online at... uh, at www.justrightmedia.org uh, that we've done on gun control. Had had uh, Jim Montag on, the late Jim Montag, uh, about a year ago, talking about this issue, and we played clips indeed from uh, John Stossel, who interviewed thieves and robbers and prisoners in jail who clearly made it their, uh, their choice to be in those states where they have gun control in which to operate. Now, on the question of the right to bear arms as being related only to the possession of arms within a well-regulated militia, you've got to be careful not to reverse the hierarchy of rights. And remember that the American Constitution, when they started with the whole inalienable rights things, or, or, or rather not that, the, the idea that these ideas are self-evident, those ideas were never self-evident. They went through a whole debate before that, and they basically arrived at certain conclusions. And uh, you have to understand, legitimate rights only pertain to individuals who are the only entities capable of exercising rights. Governments have no rights as such, but they only have the authority to protect or to violate rights. And in a free society, it is said, again, as I said before, that governments govern with the consent of the governed. And while you have to be careful, again, not to take this literally in the sense of some voting process, okay, if a lot of people think that means we should have majority vote, majority rule, it's not what it means. What it means in a deeper sense is that the governments don't have any authority or power that uh, its own citizens do not possess. In a free society, whatever rights governments have can only be those that its citizens have. And that's certainly implied uh, in Zachary's argument, in his question. You can see that. He says, yeah, he says, you have the right, but you can, it's not inalienable. Well, I disagree, but I agree with where he was going with that. And, but I would say that it's precisely because we as individuals have rights, and in this case, the right of self-defense, and of life itself, in fact, that governments can legitimately acquire their authority. Uh, in law and in the pursuit of recourse of uh, retaliatory uh, force, justice, whatever you want to call it, under that law. Interesting letter in the uh, National Post, very short, from a woman named Stephanie Chase, writing from Ratby, England, and under the heading, Foolish Gun Bands. And that is that, uh, she writes, In my home country, England, handguns were banned in 1977. However, research by the London Defence College shows that there was a 40% increase in handgun crime in the two years following the ban. England has some of the tightest restrictions on firearms in Europe and has banned the possession of handguns. Yet even with this, uh, crime is out of, gun crime is out of control. What makes politicians think that their restrictions would work in Canada, she asks. And speaking of England... Uh, Feel-good bans don't reduce violent crime, wrote Lauren Gunter back in the National Post on June 2nd, uh, where he writes, quote, following the horrific 1996 uh, Dunblany slayings at a Scottish elementary school, the British government banned all private ownership of handguns. The restrictions were so complete, the British Olympic shooting team was forced for a time to shuttle across the channel to train in northern France. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? Just like, just like David Miller did in Toronto, eh? banning all the gun clubs. Now, the overall effect of the ban was the same as in Australia. Gun crime skyrocketed. Unlike Australia, where rates leveled off, gun crime and other violent crimes have continued to soar in Britain. Last year alone, the increase was 4.3%. And all violent crime in Britain has increased by more than half in the past decade. According to the Institute of Economic Analysis, the ban's ineffectiveness was such that by the year 2000, 
Violent crime had increased so much that England had the developed world's highest rate of violent crime, far surpassing even the USA. Now, you've got to listen to this. This is these stats I've known about for years. And in fact, you know, Canada has nothing to be proud of. We have fewer crimes in the states because we have fewer people. But on a per capita basis, believe it or not, there's a whole stretch there where we're we're way above the states on a per capita basis. And now to the article that we were talking about on that show, again by Lauren Gunter, and I'm assuming it's October 27th because I didn't get, actually get the original copy, but it had to be near the day that we broadcast. And he talks about how um, apparently the city of Chicago has become murder city in the U.S. It took over as the murder capital. And there are several cities that have higher murder rates per 100,000 population. Here again, playing with numbers, but no city with more total murders. Even with a population of just over 3 million, Chicagoans can expect more murders, 500 in their city, than in New York, 400 murders and 5 million population. Or Los Angeles, 300 murders versus 3.8 million people. Yet Chicago is also the gun confiscation and voluntary hand-in capital of the U.S. Over the past decade, Chicago police have confiscated or had surrendered to them an average of 10,800 guns per year and they had a complete ban on handgun sales and possession since 1982. So, you know, on and on it goes. Talks about um, just tons of evidence. I don't want to get into all of it because I want to get into the next subject soon. But I could read you this stuff. Uh, It's over. It just goes on and on. Wherever they have placed in bans, the crime rates go up. And wherever they got rid of the the ban on handguns and, in fact, allowed things like uh, being, carry, being allowed to carry concealed weapons, the rates go down, and, and this is measurable as a statistic. It doesn't change a lot of the arguments that people give you about guns. Well, you know, if it was you that got shot, well, yeah, I'm afraid that's, that's exactly true, but again, if you really are concerned, uh, you have to understand most people don't buy guns to be offensive. They're concerned with their own protection, and when they're concerned with that, I don't think there's any reason to even be worried about them. Anyways, after reviewing all of the evidence, one of the key questions that I would like to hear answered by gun prohibition advocates is, why or how can you continue to ignore entirely the reality that those who are prone to the use of initiatory force are completely unaffected by gun laws? Why, Why do you ignore that that evil exists? Why is it just erased? It's not there. It says if you make the gun go away, you make those people go away. And that's certainly not true. In Lauren Gunter's article, he points out how they just turned to knives. The rates didn't change. And that there are bad people and, you know, people who are a danger to others has to be recognized. And isn't it funny, though, you know, when you think about it? Uh, what's actually been going on even with governments when they're going into places like Iraq? Aren't they really practicing gun control? Isn't that really what what it was all about, gun control on an international level? That's where I'll leave you with on that issue for now. We'll take a quick break now. And when we come back on the other side of this very important uh, advertising um, break here, you will be hearing a little thing I did. (laughs) I just put this together yesterday. I couldn't believe how it came out. I took the closing remarks of the last presidential debate. Um, that was done in the U.S., and I took each candidate's stand on the various issues, juxtaposed them against each other, and you just won't believe what you're going to hear when you hear this on the other side. But right now, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. And now, W's in big trouble, and wouldn't you know it would be over his faulty intelligence? (laughs) 
We attack Iraq for a very specific reason. They have weapons of mass destruction. How cleverly they've hidden them. <laughs> Almost as if they were never there at all. <laughs> they have weapons of mass destruction. Apparently our weapons are weapons of growth and nurturing. I think we all know America's going through tough times right now. These are very difficult times and challenges for America. Uh, the policies of the last eight years and, and Washington's unwillingness to tackle the tough problems for decades uh, has left us in the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Uh, and that's why uh, the biggest risk we could take right now is to adopt the same failed policies and the same failed politics that we've seen over the last eight years and somehow expect a different result. America needs a new direction. We cannot be satisfied with what we've been doing for the last eight years. Uh, we need fundamental change in this country and that's what I'd like to bring. I have a record of reform and taking on my party, the other party, the special interests. But we're gonna have to invest in the American people again, in tax cuts for the middle class, in health care for all Americans and college for every young person who wants to go. We have to make health care affordable and available. We have to make a quality education there for all of our citizens, not just a privileged few. We have to stop the spending. We have to stop the spending, which is mortgage your children's futures. Uh, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. It's going to be requiring all of us, Democrats, Republicans, independents, to come together and to renew a spirit of sacrifice and service and responsibility. All of these things and all the promises and commitments that Senator Obama and I made you to make, made to you tonight, will, base, will be based on whether you can trust us or not. Can you trust them? That's, I guess, the question. Interesting, the two were actually selling a different, a different product in a way. One was selling trust while the other was selling hope. And I think that might be why the hope salesman won this time. As I said last week, I wasn't particularly concerned which of the two won, because as you could hear from that, they are almost identical for all the promises they made and the types, types of things that they would spend government money on. And uh, that's unfortunate. But on the other hand, I'm rather pleased with the result. I shouldn't be saying that, but it's put a few things behind us. I truly rejoice that the whole race issue is hopefully now behind us. There's been a demonstration at last that race cannot be held accountable as a reason for someone not to be the president of the United States. Uh, once it's been done, it's been done, and you can't use that as an excuse anymore. And uh, I think that, w that will work well for, uh, for people of all colors, including white people as well, because... Um, I th af after all, uh, if only blacks had voted for Obama, he wouldn't have gotten in. And that's, uh, you could see that from all the relief. And everyone thinks that there is some hope here. Although, you know, I don't want mean to dash all that, but, you know, what we heard from Obama were really some chilling words. And 
He really confirmed that nothing's changed in the stated direction of the Democratic Party, and that the Democratic Party, in terms of its own stated principles, does not represent what the founding fathers of the Republic drafted in the American Constitution. Uh, you know, he says America is a place where all things are possible, and tonight that change has come to America, he said. And he said, you know, he gave the usual thing, like, we won't get there in the immediate future, there'll be setbacks, might not even do it this term, we'll have to wait till next term, because a little reality's starting to sink in now. And uh, he says he knows government can't solve every problem, but apparently that's not going to stop him from trying. And he says, I'll listen to you, especially when we disagree. The victory alone is not the change we seek. And here's where it gets really scary. Let us summon a new spirit of service and a new spirit of sacrifice. In this country, we must rise and fall as one nation, as one people, individual liberty, self-reliance, and all those things are values that we share, our bonds of affection. Uh, you know, and he mixes these values, talking about sacrifice, and at the time, at the same time saying, yeah, we're, we've got liberty, we believe in self-reliance, and well, who's being sacrificed to who here? And we've heard these words before when, when John Kennedy was talking about ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He was ready to ship the boys off to Vietnam. That's where that was going. And so you've got to be careful when you hear all these promising talks from politicians whose only power, his only possible power, is to take something from one person and give it to another. And with that in mind, well, let's start the segment of the show with another email parable forwarded to me by listener Andy, and it was an interesting parable because I think it actually gave a slightly different message than what was intended, but it was I enjoyed it nonetheless, and it was called Father-Daughter Talk, and it goes like this. A young woman was about to finish her first year of college. Like so many others her age, she considered herself to be a very liberal Democrat and, among other liberal ideals, was very much in favor of higher taxes to support more government programs. In other words, redistribution of wealth. She was deeply ashamed that her father was a rather staunch Republican, a feeling that she openly expressed. Based on the lectures that she'd participated in and the occasional chat with a professor, she felt that her father had for years harbored an evil, selfish desire to keep what he thought should be his. One day, she was challenging her father on his opposition to higher taxes on the rich and the need for more government programs. The self-professed objectivity proclaimed by her professors had to be the truth, and she indicated so to her father. He responded by asking how she was doing in school. Taken aback, she answered rather haughtily that she had four or 4.0 GPA and let him know that it was, a, it was tough to maintain, insisting that she was taking a very difficult course load and was constantly studying, which left her no time to go out and party like other people she knew. She didn't even have time for a boyfriend and didn't really have many college friends because she spent all her time studying. So her father listened to this, and then he asked, So how's your friend Audrey doing? She replied, Well, Audrey's barely getting by. All she takes are the easy classes. She never studies, and she barely has a 2.0. She's so popular on campus, though, and college for her is a blast. She's always invited to all the parties, and lots of times she doesn't even show up for classes because she's too hungover. Her wise father asked his daughter, well, why don't you go to the dean's office and ask him to deduct 1.0 off your GPA and give it to your friend who has only a 2.0. That way you'll both have a 3.0, and certainly that would be a fair and equal distribution. The daughter, visibly shocked by her father's suggestion, angrily fired back. 
That's a crazy idea. How would that be fair? I've worked really hard for my grades. I've invested a lot of time and a lot of hard work. Audrey's done next to nothing towards her degree. She played while I worked my tail off. The father slowly smiled, smiled, winked, and said gently, Welcome to the Republican Party, end quote. Now, of course, I think that's the Republican Party in the mythology of the Republican Party. That's what people think the Republican Party represents. And as we've demonstrated many times on this show, and we just played the clip, you heard them, could you tell what the difference between them was? Last week we played uh, John Stossel illustrating four years ago in that clip how the Republicans have never once reduced the size of government, cut taxes in 75 to 80 years, for heaven's sakes. And they often outspend the Democrats. Isn't that interesting? Now, most people are currently focused on Barack Obama's skin color, and race, of course, is an inescapable factor in American politics, regardless of all pretensions otherwise. But once the novelty of a black president subsides, I think the debate will switch to the color of his ideas, and so far everything I've heard him say, and even not say, is not, that color is red. And of course Obama's a socialist, and socialism is what the Democratic Party is all about, so that's not an issue. Unfortunately, today's Republicans are also socialist in action, but free markets and individualism in talk. You know, thanks to them, all the negative effects of socialism are falsely associated with capitalism. So, you know, it makes my job harder. And i got to tell you, I myself grew up believing all of the myths associated with capitalism, and that made me a flaming liberal uh, by default, not conscious choice. And I, I remember being a fan of Pierre Trudeau. Still am in one degree, but not certainly policy or philosophy-wise. And uh, I myself was a victim of associative thinking. And once I discovered what the process of critical thinking was, I think my understanding of how things worked uh, increased a little bit. And so I suppose maybe that's part of my motivation for doing a volunteer radio show like this, is maybe to save some of you uh, some time and effort by pointing you in a direction towards freedom instead of always away from it, which is where everybody else wants to run both here and in Canada. It's interesting, George Jonas in the National Post on October 25th wrote, Yes, Senator Obama is something of a socialist, and so is Senator McCain. In the 21st century, it's difficult to run for office without being something of a socialist. There's a basic philosophical split between people who think of government as the problem and liberty as the solution, and those who think of liberty as the problem and government as the solution. People who think of government as the solution are statists, and one of their left-wing subspecies is called socialist. Their right-wing subspecies include paleo or social conservatives. In reality, they're birds of a feather. If you ask the Republican candidate, the Democratic candidate is a socialist. So is the Republican candidate, if you ask me. To be anything else, he would have to run on a platform of reducing government. And not just a little bit, but a lot. And he isn't. At best, he's running on a platform of throwing good government after bad government, end quote. And Jonas's article goes on to discuss the entire political spectrum. Definitely intend to return to his analysis of that subject on a future show, but that won't be right now. Now here's a question I'll leave you with, and I won't even attempt to answer it. If McCain had been a Democrat and Obama had been the Republican, do you think Obama would still have won? And would it really matter? <laughs> I don't know. Listen, time for one last smile. Here's Tina Fey as Sarah Palin from the Saturday Night Live special they had the other time. I just think it's a hoot. And when we come back on the other side, a little bit about follow-up on the Canadian election still. Governor Palin, thank you for agreeing to talk with me one more time. Oh, hey, you know, sure. <laughs> 
Did you enjoy your week in New York City? You know, I did, Katie, and I wasn't sure I would at first. New York is, of course, home to the liberal media elite, but Todd and the kids had a great time going to the Central Park and, and the FAO Schwarz and that goofy Evolution Museum. <laughs> you went to the UN for the first time. How was that experience? Oh, you know, it was just amazing. So many interesting people, though I have to say, I was disheartened by how many of them were foreigners. <laughs> I promise that when Senator McCain and I are elected, we're going to get those jobs back in American hands. policy, I want to give you one more chance to explain your claim that you have foreign policy experience based on Alaska's proximity to Russia. What did you mean by that? Well, Alaska and Russia are only separated by a narrow maritime border. You've got Alaska here, and this right here is water, and then that's up there's Russia. <laughs> So we keep an eye on them. And how do you do that exactly? Every morning when Alaskans wake up, one of the first things they do is look outside to see if there are any Russians hanging around. And if there are, you got to go up to them and ask, what are you doing here? And if they can give you a good reason, they can, then you saw responsibility to say, you know, shoo, get back over there. <laughs> Senator McCain shut down his campaign this week in order to deal with the economic crisis. What's your opinion of this potential $700 billion bailout? Like every American I'm speaking with, we are ill about this. We're saying, hey, why bail out Fannie and Freddie and not me? But ultimately what the bailout does is help those that are concerned about the health care reform that is needed to help shore up our economy, to help, um, it's got to be all about job creation too. Also to shoring up our economy and putting Fannie and Freddie back on the right track and so health care reform and reducing taxes and reining in spending because Barack Obama, you know, uh, you know, we've got to accompany tax reduction and tax relief for Americans. Also, having a dollar value meal at restaurants, that's going to help. But one in five jobs being created today under the umbrella of job creation, that, you know, also, <laughs> it's it. Well, look across the border. Americans are so different in their values. They say. What a pity there's only 24 hours in the day. A Canadian says, what a pity there's only 24 Timbits in the box. <laughs> and what about Australia? People want to compare us to Australia. You can't. The people who colonized Australia came out of prison. 
the people who colonized this country never got caught. And that's probably how the next writer of this article feels about Stephen Harper and his party, which is partly the title of her article, appearing in Executive Magazine, ostensibly a business magazine, October 2008, and written by Wendy Peters, forwarded to me by listener Jack. Thanks for that, Jack, and it's an interesting article. So, you know, for those of you who believe that business people are generally pro-Harper or pro-conservative here in Canada, here's something to shatter your delusion. Uh, At first, because it appeared in a business newspaper, I thought this article was pure sarcasm and playing devil's advocate, if you want to use a phrase. And the reasons I thought this was, uh, you know, I thought the writer succeeded in demonstrating Harper's best qualities and, and, and his virtues by criticizing them. Unfortunately, as I read on, the writer was being quite literal in her opinion and expressions of hostility, and and this was revealed less by her criticisms of Harper than by the type of government that she actually says she supports. And that's when I realized she was being serious. Now, bear in mind, this was written before the Canadian federal election. Quote, he's a bad man, a very, very bad man. Seinfeld aficionados will surely recognize those famous words uttered by Babu, a Pakistani restaurateur who believed he had been misguided by Seinfeld's advice. Well, Babu's description pretty well sums up my opinion of Stephen Harper, his deceptive and insidious reasons for calling a snap in election and his not-so-hidden agenda. The hidden agenda? Listen to this. Tom Flanagan, Harper's mentor and biographer and former chief of staff, touted this rather sinister plan. By the way, sinister means left. According to Flanagan, Harper hopes to throw the liberals into a state of chaos by calling this snap election and ultimately destroy it as Canada's so-called natural governing party. He added that Harper isn't so much concerned about winning a majority this time around, but rather waging a prolonged war of attrition. He said another Tory minority would be enough to throw the Liberals into turmoil and give Harper a virtually free hand in Parliament for quite a while and really handicap his main opponent. And that was quoted, she quoted that out of the Globe and Mail, August 27th. And then she says, boy, if that doesn't chill you to the bone, end quote. Actually, uh, no, it doesn't concern me at all, let alone chill me to the bone. But what does chill me is to see an editor of a so-called business publication appealing to character assassination in an effort to justify political uncertainty and mob rule. What I can think, you know, while I can think of many things to criticize about Harper's conservative party policies, condemning him for being successful in his strategy and execution of that strategy is about the most unbusinesslike attitude I've heard expressed in quite a while. You know, I already gave you Wendy Peters' punchline that Harper's got an, you know, has this open agenda which he announced in advance. And but here's a subtext that I skipped in revealing how she reached her conclusion that Harper's a very bad man. Now, get this quote. Even though this ugly, clashing, hideously partisan parliament, or sorry, even through this ugly, clashing, hideous partisan parliament, the conservatives have managed to pass an inordinate number of laws, and it has lasted longer than any other minority government in history. It has to be said that this is mostly a result of the disarray in which the liberals found themselves after the last election. The first year they were without a leader, and when Stefan Dion was finally elected, the party was in no shape to prompt an election. 
To the chagrin of most liberal MPs, they were forced to abstain from the majority of votes on parliamentary bills just to avoid going to the polls. The result was a constant onslaught of insults against Dion from his opponents, calling him weak and indecisive. It has been reported that no other political leader has been under such a prolonged attack as Dion has suffered since becoming a liberal leader, end quote. Now there's hypocrisy at its clearest. Wendy Peters thinks it's terrible to call Dion weak and indecisive, which is a performance judgment, but it's perfectly okay to call Harper a bad, bad, bad man, which is a moral judgment. And why? precisely for being strong and decisive. She then displays her complete contempt for how Parliament works when after claiming that Harper ignored his own fixed election date law, and then she writes, quote, he's utterly ignored it, claiming that the current Parliament's become so dysfunctional that he can no longer govern. In an attempt to prove just how dysfunctional it's become, he summoned the opposition party leaders one by one, like pupils to a headmaster's study, asking each to pledge full conformity to his next mandate. Excuse me, but this is a minority government, and it's up to the opposition parties to keep the governing party in check, not to say yes, master, no, master, without question. That is why Canadians voted as they did in 2006, deciding that no party was worthy of a majority at that time, end quote. Now, it's a bit difficult for me to get inside the mind of someone who actually believes <laughs> that Canadians somehow got together in advance and collectively decided what they wanted was a minority government. Somehow, they each magically determined what the other voter was voting, right, and voted accordingly to ensure that minority government. A remarkable feat, especially in a first-past-the-post riding-by-riding electoral system. No one has control over that, for heaven's sake. Just how the numbers fall. Throw the dice. If you think you got control of that, well, you can sit at the slot machines for the rest of your life. And then she writes, quote, And talking of dysfunctional, when actually she's talking about the functional, it was Harper and a strategist who created a 200-page manual detailing how their MPs could disrupt and render impotent the various parliamentary committees. Again, little has been written about that in the mainstream media. Harper has turned dysfunction into an art form. <laughs> well, yeah, the dysfunction of the other political parties. It's not his dysfunction, it's theirs. And even if one word of this is true, then i got to admit Harper is a political genius, and he's doing exactly what he should be doing as leader of a political party and of a government. But here's the Achilles heel of her argument. Quote, Those who lived under Mike Harris's rule in Ontario may remember a general feeling of angst among Ontarians. The Harris government was always in a brawl with some group or other. Well, that same feeling is here today across the country under the Harper Party. I feel anguish and uncertainty, and I'm by no means alone in my fear. Canada's going completely in the wrong direction. Harper may be a strong leader. There have been many strong leaders, but what we need is a party that governs as a team, parliamentarians who share their thoughts, dreams, and plans, and don't simply tell you to shut up. Can we have our country back, please? She concludes. Now, it's more than difficult to re reconcile her wish for a party that governs as a team with her disparaging Harper's party for operating like a team. You know, she says, well, they all shut up there because they don't disagree. Well, that's what you do when you operate as a team. When you're part of a team, you toe the team line. When you're part of a party and you choose to run for that party, then you toe the party line. That's your moral responsibility. I don't recall any angst under Harris's rule, but I certainly do recall such feelings under McGinty, whose reputation for breaking promises has become the signature of his governance. And, of course, Dalton McGinty has a, has a letter right under Wendy Peters' editorial in this paper praising her newspaper for a business scope feature which highlighted the concerns of mayors across the distribution area of the paper. But that was a side issue. 
Whenever, whenever any party other than the conservatives don't get what they want, Peters claims that government is impotent and dysfunctional. I agree, I agree with her that Canada is going completely in the wrong direction, and that's because all Canadian parties are headed in the wrong direction. Higher taxes, increased government intervention, state multiculturalism, and above all, green, 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 green. These are all disastrous for Canada. And although Harper's government is heading in the direction of all the parties, it moves the slowest, but with the greatest certainty. Historically, conservatives have enacted, of course, most of this country's most liberal policies, from income tax in Ontario in 1969 to the banning of private health insurers and a host of other things I listed on past shows. If there's any reason to feel angst in Canadian politics, it is because Canadians have no choices left. Let's face it, you get basically get socialism, socialism, or more socialism. And, and the false idea that a representative democracy means majority rule and that everybody should have their say is, is a culmination of a tribalistic mentality, really, and it's the cause of conflict. You see, wherever, wherever people do that, that's where they have problems. Check out any country that operates on tribalistic principles, and you'll discover a society that's less civilized than an individualist society. And by civilization, we mean a society in which the initiation of the use of force between individuals is prohibited and punished by governments, which is, incidentally, the subject we started off with today. But majority rule types, uh, they don't want the government to be the referee. They want, to be, they want to be the referee, and they want to make sure that the government's the only player at the table and that they control that player. It's those who think like Wendy Peters who are the problem in this country, not the solution, I think, anyways. And the agenda they're hiding is from themselves, uh, a denial of just where their ideas would lead us. And that's uh, the reason that they feel the angst. And that's it for today. Got to leave you there, folks. And we'll be back next week when I hope you again join us on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, act right, stay right, and think right. Take care. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be you like this. If you ever go to the airport here in Toronto, coffee is still $4. How do they stay in business? Turns in only four bucks for a cup of coffee. They must be losing the shirts, for God's sake. Well, that was sarcasm. I'm glad I got that off my chest. Some of you just stared at me. Oh, he must have had the cream. Okay.